situation that we're in and what we can learn. But we thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Titus uh, chapter 1, and uh, as we usually do, uh, someone reading the whole chapter, I would love that, and we can begin uh, where we left off last week. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and that the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, but they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Thank you. You know, as I listen to uh, that chapter, it just, it, it gives you a sense for me, definitely as a pastor, of the weightiness of pastoral ministry and the challenges to healthy church life, especially from false teachers um, and from immorality, from all of the assaults. Um, and so it's just a, a very weighty passage. Now, we're going through Titus 1, and we're in the section in which the qualifications for elders are laid out. Um, foundational to a healthy church is good leadership and the uh, leaders the the two offices new testament offices for local church are elders and deacons Um, elders are given spiritual leadership oversight Uh, there are two or three um, names for elders Um, the word pastor isn't really found but um, the shepherding mentality is there so you have that sense of of a shepherd or a pastor that's one and then uh, overseer and elder are the other two episkopos and um, presbyteros are the the greek words so overseer gives a sense of of oversight of an awareness of what's happening with the sheep uh, not in any way superiority to the sheep but a perspective that enables him to see what's going on with the members of the flock especially if any of them are 
are wandering, are in, in danger, and that they can go bring them back. So there's that, and then you have uh, elder, which gives a sense of uh, spiritual maturity, of um, you know, experience, uh, humility, I would hope, um, and various other things. So those are the titles, and they're used interchangeably right in this passage. You know, uh, you go from, um, you know, that you might appoint elders in every town, and then it says an overseer must be dot, dot, dot. So those are, those are interchangeable terms. Uh, there's no difference, but those are the two offices. Um, and we've walked through that and, and, and seen uh, step by step, uh, first, negatively, uh, what, what you must not see in the elder's life. So uh, above reproach, so a reproach or another translation is blameless. Uh, the idea is a, uh, a mark on the man's uh, reputation, uh, on his, his knowledge of his character, which would disqualify him from serving in this office. That's what we understood that to be. Not perfection, um, but nothing which would uh, disqualify him from the office, um, that he be blameless. And then we walk through these other, um, other uh, traits. Uh, his marriage must be, if he is married, uh, must be exemplary. All right, exemplary. Again, not perfect. No one has a perfect marriage. But it must be exemplary. What do I mean by that? Exemplary. Worthy of being emulated. Right. And why, Jim, is that so important, uh, this idea of emulation or an example? Well, you're shepherding people along, and you need to be able to be an example. To, you know, it's like show and tell, simple terms, you know? Right. Uh, how you do it, be a good, be a good representation of that. For sure. So Christian discipleship has two basic patterns, doctrinal and lifestyle. Uh, doctrinal uh, learning is done from, from books, especially this book, the Bible, but also other books, Christian books. And so we study. Ours is a literary faith. It's an academic faith. Everywhere that Christianity has gone, it has established colleges and universities, and that's because of the complexity of the Bible and the challenge of intellectually, mentally understanding our faith. Um, later in this, it says um, that he must uh, hold to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. Um, he, he has to be doctrinally sound, and so there's that book-learning aspect to ministry. But then there's that life-learning aspect. So Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Of course, that starts with Jesus, the incarnation. Jesus showed us how to live. He, he said to individuals, follow me, right? He walks by Peter, John, James, and Andrew as they're fishing. says, follow me. And they went and spent time with him. In John chapter 1, some of John the Baptist's disciples followed Jesus when they heard John the Baptist point and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Some of John's own disciples went after Jesus. Jesus turned around said, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said, Come and see. And they spent time with him. So this spending time with Jesus, that was essential to his discipleship pattern. And so uh, an elder, an overseer, has to put his life on display as an example. And that, uh, in this list, begins with his marriage, if he is married. Now, I said that because we didn't rule out single men. Uh, a man who doesn't have a wife, he's not thereby disqualified. All right, A widower can serve as an elder. 
right? Uh, a single man who has the gift of singleness, like it seems the Apostle Paul can serve as an elder. However, if the man is married, he has an exemplary marriage. And again, if the man has children, if he's childless, if the, his husband and wife have no children, he's not thereby disqualified. But if he does have children, especially, I think, as we saw, minor children, who it would be expected, if he's a good father, knows how to run his home, they're obeying him. And he's got his home in good order. He's able to engender loyalty and submission and obedience on the part of his children who are growing up in his home. And so these qualifications for him as a father, uh, as seen in the fact that they are believing and they're not o open to a charge of being wild or disobedient. So that's what we, uh, uh, we saw there. And then verse 7, uh, he's a steward, a steward of God's work, a steward of the church. All right? Uh, this is a work that's entrusted to him. And so stewardship is essential to pastoral ministry, a sense of stewardship. What does that mean, that word steward? He's a steward of the church, a steward of the word of God. An effective manager. Okay. So essential to stewardship is the individual, the servant, who is the steward, doesn't own the thing he's managing. It's not his. All right? So the Bible isn't his. It's been entrusted to him. Okay? It's been entrusted. We're going to see that very plainly in verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. Chris, what was your translation of verse 9? Uh, that was it. <clears throat> so same in ESV? Okay. So the idea is it was taught to him. His job is to not change it, not mess it up. I mean, a really good pastor, a really good preacher is a table waiter who takes the meal from the chef in the kitchen and delivers it safely to the table. All right? Imagine a five-star hotel in downtown New York City, something like that. You've got a world-class chef, and you've got a table waiter who rearranges the plate en route. What do you think the uh, chef would think about that when he found out that the asparagus was in a different place when it was actually put on the table? What would the chef think about that table waiter? It'd be his last day. He's, that's not his job Goodbye. to rearrange the asparagus. It's the chef's job. Now, in my analogy, the chef is the Holy Spirit. All right? My job is to deliver it safely to the table. So I'm a steward of the Word of God. I'm a steward of the doctrines, of the theology. I'm not an innovator. If I come up with anything that no one has ever seen in 20 centuries of church history, I'm a heretic, probably, all right? And it's hard to do because there have been a lot of heretics, so they've come up with a lot of creative stuff. But at any rate, that's not my job, steward. And then the people, the church itself, belong to Jesus. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. They don't belong to the pastor. The, the pastor doesn't own them. He is actually one of them. He is bought he himself is bought with a price but the church as it's constituted and organized doesn't belong to him he should not have an unwieldy sense of or inappropriate sense of ownership of the church it's not his church and i think some pastors especially successful ones um, that see their church grow and grow numerically may get a pride problem and forget they're just stewards of a church bought with the blood of christ any thoughts on this as we talk about this idea of stewardship? A pastor is a steward of things that don't belong to him. Well, I think we see a problem in some churches 
today, even once close by, where the doctrine is messed with. And then we get into pagan teaching and made-up things, yeah. man-made doctrines that are not true. Yeah. Yeah, so my, my job is to take the Bible, read it, understand it as it's written, and deliver it. That's it. And uh, I, I think there's a tremendous amount of freedom in that. All right? I don't, I don't have to be afraid of anything the Word of God says. Even if I know it's unpopular, my job is to be sure I'm getting it right. That makes sense that I'm rightly dividing the Word of Truth. That's, and I'm articulating it rightly. That's my job. But there's, it frees you from fear. If at that point you're saying, look, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with this. And that's, there's a certain freedom, but there's a stewardship. I could talk more about this than we already have the last few weeks, so let's keep going. He's entrusted with God's work, so therefore he must be blameless. Again, same word. So it's in there twice. I think that the doubling of it means um, it's, a, it's a vital issue. And I, I decided last week to say, I think what it means is not only does he have to enter into the office blameless, but he has to continue blameless. Um, that the way he's carrying himself as a pastor, there's no reason that he would not be able to continue to serve. So he has to be blameless. And then we walk through these uh, other negative traits. Not overbearing or quick-tempered and not violent. All right, so those are three that you could cluster together. So just remind what we talked about last time. Being overbearing, uh, there's an essential pride or arrogance to that demeanor. So talk to me more about that. You know, the pastor, the elder must not be an overbearing, arrogant individual. As if they have a special knowledge or a higher knowledge of what's going on with the word and lord it over others and, and take a, a position of supremacy rather than, as you described earlier, faithfully realizing that they're in the same boat. Okay. It's not in my list the fruits of the Spirit. <laughs> what would the difference, men? be between being overbearing, as this verse says we should, a pastor should not be, and being bold in the proclamation of difficult doctrines. Bold in the proclamation of difficult doctrines. Do you think the pastor should be that? Yes. All right. Will he be seen to be overbearing by some when he does that? Sure. Absolutely. Does that mean he is being overbearing? No. No, it's not. I mean, not necessarily. He might be overbearing it, but you have to weed them out. You have to separate them. So I tend to think of it this way. You're overbearing about yourself, your position, your pride, your place, how people see you. That's the problem. I don't think you can be too bold or confident or whatever when it comes to sound doctrine. And that requires a great deal of confidence in the Word of God, and you're going to proclaim it. You're going to proclaim it boldly and clearly. So you have to make a distinction there. Anyway, so that's the issue of not being overbearing. Also, we saw last time, you know, I linked it to the bruised reed. He does not break in the smoldering wick. He does not snuff out. Speaking of Jesus' gentleness with broken sinners, Jesus was skillful and gentle in binding up broken hearts, binding up broken lives. Talk about some of the women... Uh, that he dealt with, like the woman that was weeping and anointing Jesus' feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. Here's a broken sinner, 
and Jesus deals with her very lovingly and gently. Or the Samaritan woman, you know, has had five husbands, and the man she's living with now is not her husband. You know, he's very skillful in dealing with her. He electrifies her and excites her with the kingdom of God and with Jesus as the Messiah and all that. It's amazing the effect he has on her. Um, so a, a pastor, a skillful pastor, then has that gentleness. He's not arrogant. Um, also, he's not quick-tempered or violent. So any thoughts on that? Being quick-tempered can get in the way of uh, effective communication with somebody. You're more putting the emphasis on arguing than you are in uh, shepherding or explaining or uh, having calmness to do so properly. And we said before, there's two different kinds of anger. There's righteous anger and unrighteous. All right, This is weeding out the second type, right? What is the root cause of much unrighteous anger on the part of individuals? Pride. Pride. Again, it's like we've been saying. You've offended him. You've insulted him. You're getting in his way and his agenda. That's why he's quick-tempered, right? And so that's, uh, that's obviously a problem. So the individual has to not be that way. He's not quick-tempered. Now, uh, we have some other. I skipped over the drunkenness aspect. Uh, we talked about it last time, and I don't have anything new to say about it. Um, any questions about that? So there's a difference between drinking wine and being a drunkard. So it's not required that the individual not drink any alcoholic beverage, but it is required that he show self-control. So the idea is self-control here, right? He's not overindulging in this. Same thing with... Um, um, with not pursuing dishonest gain. And so I got, I got an email from uh, someone this week, actually he's not here, but um, pursuing it, and there is a kind of a twisted angle of the money acquisition here. So I think the point is that he's not a dishonest businessman. He's not you know, searching for a con or an angle. But we also agreed that even if he were not dishonest, he could still be covetous, right? He could still be constantly greedy for more money. And so self-control in the area of money is vital for the elder. So that we went over, this is all review. Any questions or comments about these requirements here? Okay, right at the end of the time last week, we were talking about hospitality. He must be hospitable. What does that mean, hospitable? Welcoming in... in um uh, person and in, in materials, home, having something in your home, that kind of a thing. So it definitely has to do with your home, uh, you know, hospitality. I mean, you could extend it just to a personality trait, but just the simple understanding of the word hospitality is you're opening your home to people. You know, Peter says, offer hospitality without grumbling. I, I like that verse. What does that word mean, grumbling? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you could well imagine. Um, I, I've joked about how when you're having people over, you get your house to a state of unusual cleanliness. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't usually look like that. Uh, it's a bit of a deception, I guess you could say. That's the darker way to look at it. I say, no, no, you're honoring your, your guests, but you're also honoring yourself because you, you want to present your, your best best foot forward but you could well imagine the process of getting your home ready for a bunch of guests is laborious and so if there's any grumbling 
that goes on, it might be during those hours, you know, during the vacuuming or the cleaning up or something like that. Or it could be if your house guest stays a day or so longer than you would wish. Um, yeah, I mean, like Ben Franklin said, house guests are like fish. After about three days, they go bad, something like that. I don't remember what, it, what the exact quote was. It's about time for you to move on out <laughs> kind of thing. But um, I think it's so insightful, though, that the Word of God has that in there. Offer hospitality without grumbling. I mean, that's been an issue, you know, all along. So you should be very glad that people are in your home. That's hospitality. How does that tie into role modeling? I think there's a direct connection to role modeling. Like the elder must be able to put his marriage on display and his fathering on display. How do you do that without hospitality? If no one ever comes to your home, they can't see that generally, except out in public. So any thoughts on the connection between hospitality and being a role model? Making people feel comfortable around you. In other words, not on guard or something, you know, that you're uh, not doing anything to offend them or anything, you know. Or, yeah. And, but just, just some people, you know, sometimes you're not comfortable being around them, you know, and you feel like And I think if you have your home open and have a lot of people over, they can see you in your native habitat, and you, it's more powerful. It's impactful. How your family life is going, how, how things relate. It's very, very powerful. Um, yeah, go ahead, Jack. Uh, mentioned a lot once, you know, every now and then about prison ministry. If you go in there with the arrogant things, I'm better than you, I'm, you've made mistakes I have made and stuff like that. If you go in there with an attitude like that, you you might as well turn around and hold back home because you're not going to win any oh, anybody to coming to the Bible study to be but you, you go there with um, with an attitude that you're there to learn as much as they are. You know, you're there to you're not holding any kind of of uh, attitude above them or anything, you know, but um, and the thing of it is they can read you in a moment. There, I mean, they know. Um, they may be not well educated. They may be well educated. They may be all these things, you know. But, but one thing about it, they they can read a lot about what's going on with you. And and but if you're going there with an attitude that um, you that you um, that they've done something wrong, which they wouldn't be there if they hadn't done something wrong. If you go in there with that type of attitude, you know, you're not going to get anywhere with them. Yeah, I think there's something very beautiful about humility in a leader. Um, and there was such, such a, a beautiful humility to Jesus. You know, Jesus, the, the ultimate example of someone who knew who he was. Um, he knew he was God. He knew he was king. He knew who he was but he's also washing their feet. He's serving people constantly, all day long. Miserable people, hurting people, you know, lepers, paralyzed people, blind people, people with fevers. I mean, it's just miserable people. 
and uh, he just cared for them. Uh, such an example. So hospitality, uh, willingness to do that without grumbling. You know, um, every, every Christian should be hospitable, but there's some people with the gift of hospitality. And I've, I've, I've said before, the basic, it's the difference between functioning and flourishing. So how would you describe the effect on house guests of somebody who's really good at hospitality? What sense do they get as that person's house guests? They're wanted, uh, and you want, it communicates they, somebody wants to spend time with them, yeah. and that they're wanted. Yeah, like they're doing you a favor by staying in your home. Like, like the, the, the greatest blessing that could have ever happened to me is that you came and stayed at my home. I mean, that's amazing. If you can pull that off, not in any way that the person was a burden or cost extra money, or not, that doesn't even enter the mind. It's like we're so glad that we could even do this together. So go ahead, Clay. Um, I, I learned this years ago. Uh, it's a positive, heartfelt disposition that you've been given to receive and treat guests or strangers or anything of the like to when you can actually open up your home in a generous, kind, heartfelt way. Yeah, I mean, sheep and the goats, you know, Jesus said I was a stranger and you invited me in. So this would be lost people, this would be church members, this would be families, I mean, whoever. And there's that openness, hospitable. Let's keep going. One who loves what is good. That's an interesting statement. What does that mean to you? A lover of good. Like, kind of like, that's obvious, isn't it? But yet here it is on the list. What, what, what does this mean to you, and how does it communicate, and why would it be a requirement for an elder? What's the opposite of it? Uh, well, 1 Corinthians 13 gives it, one who does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth, there it says. So I think the idea is anything that God does is good. Anything that God, you know, so the word of God is good. The elder loves it because it's good, all right? Uh, Christian fellowship is good. He loves what is good. Whatever God made good, he loves and delights in it. Good food, he loves it because God made it. Um, he's just a, a lover of what is good. The opposite was is he doesn't love evil. So part of that is he doesn't want to hear gossip and slander. He doesn't want to hear off-color jokes or that kind of stuff. It's not, it's not good. So he doesn't love that. That's not what he wants. What he wants is what's good. What's good for people, etc. So that's, I think, what it means, a lover of good. So let's keep going. A lover of good, and then self-controlled, again. It's, we've seen that in terms of the drink and the money. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a mysterious thing, really. Because it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, all right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Why would I call that a mysterious fruit of the Spirit? What's mysterious about it? Self-control. Huh? The word self. So is it a spirit control or is it a self-control? How do we understand self-control? I would say submission to the Spirit. Okay. Self-submission to the Spirit. So I'm taking myself and I'm submitting to what the Spirit wants. Okay. In a simplistic way, what does self-control mean? Just aside from fruit of the Spirit and any of that, just as a person who's self-controlled, what does that mean, self-control? 
You're not given to um, impulsive or quick uh, actions or decisions. Overindulgence, all right? So going beyond proper boundaries. And I've said before, the flesh, the essence of the flesh is it takes a good desire that God gave and pushes it beyond boundaries that God has set up. That's what the flesh does. So you, there's a boundary that God has set up. Like with, with sex, it's called marriage. That's the boundary. This is your wife. She's provided for your sexual uh, life and nothing else. And that's it. So there's that boundary, okay? Uh, so what's a boundary around food? Not gluttony. So not glut. What is gluttony? <coughs> Eating beyond what you really need or... or okay. Out of control. Yeah. So, and in, in all of this, I think we can see some idolatry, right? There's a, there, you're worshiping and serving a created thing, not the creator. That created thing has too great a role in your life. You just can't say no to it. And it just drives you on. That's where drunkenness comes from. That's where gluttony comes from, sexual immorality, covetousness or greed financially. The person is not self-controlled. They're given to their impulses, they're given to their drives, they are enslaved basically to them. Because it says a man is slave, a slave to whatever has mastered him. One thing I've said before is if you want to know if something has mastered you, fast from it. Give it up, all right? So I, I, you know, it's easy to talk about food or alcohol, but you could, what would be some other idols? Uh, what are things that people go crazy over and they spend tons of time on? Stock market. Stock market? Huh? Social media. Social media? Okay. Gambling. So if you're going to gamble, just do a little of it. All right, is that what we're saying? It's a <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the opportunity, maybe, maybe I have an opportunity to win something here, you know, and so you're willing to do it. But it's, sometimes you get involved in something like that. that it sort of pulls you in more, you know, which is not good. I told you guys, I've told you this many, many times, I'll say it again. Last time I gambled on a sport event, you guys remember? I, I bet on the Soviet Union hockey, te hockey team to beat our boys at Lake Placid. It was a done deal. It was a sure thing. I'm responsible for the miracle gold medal, me, because of that bet, you know? But I thought, my goodness, if ever there was anything that was a sure thing, like in sports history, that was it. And look what happened. So I learned, don't bet on sports, ever. <laughs> was this at the 1980 hockey game? Yes, it was. 44 years ago. A long time ago. A good lesson, a life lesson for Andy Davis. At any rate, um, yeah, so th there's that. But um, I think sports itself is an idol in our country. People get, they immerse themselves in it and they can't stop you know, watching. And again, the way you know is give it up for a while. You know, video games. video games for a lot of young men, they do that for sure. So self-control, and the idea is, it's a mystery where the spirit and where myself, where that mesh goes. But I, I think Philippians 2, 12 and 13 gives a sense of it. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is god who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure so there's a mysterious give and take between the soul of the christian and the indwelling holy spirit 
and the spirit is talking to the soul of the Christian and the Christian is talking to the spirit in prayer and there's a walking that goes and you're just marshalling yourself at every moment. So that's at the dinner table, that's with your watching habits, what you do with the internet. It's just there's a, a, a constant walking with the Lord and you know when enough is enough. So this elder knows when enough is enough, this candidate. He's a, he's a self-controlled individual. He's not enslaved to anything. Doesn't mean he's, uh, he's an ascetic, like some of these guys that, that quit all normal life and went out and lived in a desert in a cave somewhere. Uh, there's a whole history of that asceticism. It doesn't lead to holiness. Um, it leads to bizarre eccentricities. But this individual lives, I think, essentially a normal life, but within those boundaries. He's a self-controlled person. All right, any other comments on, on somebody who's self-controlled? In chapter 2, he mentions that as, as something you teach the men, the young women, and the only thing he mentions the young men. Okay. So that's important for, for older men teaching younger men to be self-controlled and to, you know, to, be, to not be creatures of, of passion, for sure. Thanks, Jim. That's one, one question yes. about this, this particular verse. Yeah. Uh, verse 8, that's where we're right. We're at right. Verse 8, right? Uh, yes, sir. Okay. Okay, it's... Um, starting in the middle of who is self-controlled by holy and discipline. Yeah. Holy. That, yeah. that word, to me, uh, means without sin, when I think holy. It's not spelled with a capital H, but uh, that, uh, comment on that a little bit. Well, let's talk about it. I mean, you know, it's between what we're looking at, upright, upright just means righteous, I think, a righteous man. So let's talk about holy. That's a significant word. What is that? What does that word mean? I think upright and holy all go together because um, I was listening to a message about this last week and said upright and holy are without flaw. That means uh, also without sin. Yeah, that, that's the point I was getting at, without sin. And when I think about holy, uh, Jesus Christ is the only holy person I could ever, that I know of. <clears throat> so what does it mean? What is holiness? How do we understand that very significant term, holiness? Christ-like. Christ-likeness. I like that. But, all right, so let's, let's think about it. It's a very significant word ascribed to God. You know, in Isaiah 6, the seraphim were crying to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. All right, so they were celebrating the holiness of God. Now, I think, for me, uh, in my readings on the topic of holiness, I think it starts, home base for the word is separation. Separation. So, for example, if you have the vessels, the articles connected with temple worship or tabernacle worship, they were holy to the Lord, right? Or the, um, the incense, which had a recipe in the Law of Moses, could not be made for private use. Same thing with the anointing oil. It was called holy to the Lord. In other words, you're not allowed to make this recipe just for your private use. It was separate unto God for his private use. So all of the vessels were holy to the Lord. They were separate unto God for their holy uh, use. So I think the first way to think about holiness is separation. Separation. Um, and God is separate from the entire universe. God is separate from all created things. 
infinitely separate. And why do I say that? Why would I say that God the Creator, as Creator, is separate from His creation? Well, we're supposed to live our lives in a way that reflects God's glory, right? Right, but I'm talking about God and His creatures. By definition, everything else is created. Right. And there is nothing in creation remotely or even close to like God in that sense. There is a, an immeasurable gap between God the Creator and everything else. And the seraphim know that, don't they? They know that He is different than they are. He's unique. He's separate from everything else. So that's the first sense of the holiness of God. Separate from all cre creation, all right? Then creatures that are holy, creatures that are holy, are separate unto God as his private possession. They are owned by him and have a special access to him and a relationship to him. And then once evil entered the world, the universe, once wickedness or darkness entered the world, the most significant sense of holiness is separate from evil, that God is separate from anything evil. The best statement of this, I think, in the whole Bible, other than Isaiah 6, is 1 John 1.5. This is the message we heard and have declared to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. What does that mean? God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. It's complete perfection. Okay. Would you say darkness in that verse refers to evil? Yes. Say Yeah. So there is no evil in God at all. There, you know, he's not a mixed being. That makes sense? He is pure through and through. Anything that is evil is infinitely separate from God. So, for example, when it says that God cannot lie, Lying is infinitely far away from God. It's just actually just impossible for God to lie. All right? Injustice is similarly infinitely far from God. It's just impossible for God to do anything unjust. Absolutely impossible. All right? So holiness then for us would be, first and foremost, that we would think, I belong to God. I am separate unto God as his private possession. I, I belong to him. All right? I am separate unto him. Let me, let me show you uh, an example of this. This is in John 17. Go to John 17 and look at this. So I, I think you have to understand this properly. John 17. All right, can someone read uh, in John 17? This is the prayer that Jesus prays to his Father. Beautiful prayer. John 17, 13 through um, 19. John 17, 13 through 19. When the Spirit of truth comes... Sorry, John 17, sorry, 13 through 19. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. That's 16. Good chapter, though. I love it, I love it. Right, so go ahead. I love John 17. Now. All right. 13 to what? 13 through 19. Okay. By now I am coming to you... And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. And you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So it changed to consecrate there. Interesting. I would just stick with sanctify straight through, because it's the same word. All right, so 1717 says, sanctify them by the truth, them being his apostles, his disciples. Sanctify them by the truth. What does that mean? It means set them apart unto yourself, God. Make them your special possession. All right? I don't think the home base here is purity from evil, although it's very close, because they're not of the world. But I know it's not a progressive growth in holiness where little by little they could become more and more holy. That is not the sense here because of verse 19. What does he pray in verse 19? Let's stick with the word sanctify and not change it. What does 19 say? And for their sake, I sanctify myself. That they too may be sanctified. It's the same word. So Jesus is sanctifying himself. Let me ask you a question. Is he becoming increasingly holy thereby? No, he's not. He's already perfectly holy. Is he putting sin to death by the power of the Spirit? No. He's setting himself apart to God for a purpose. For holy service. For holy service. And what is that? Death on the cross. And he's doing that, that they also may be set apart as God's sacred possession. So that's the home base of holiness, set apart to God. Secondary sense, but vital for us to understand, is separation from all sin. That's what holiness is. So go back then to Titus. The elder candidate must be a holy man. A holy man. So what does that mean? He thinks of himself as God's possession, as Christ's possession, bought with the blood of Christ. He belongs to God. He doesn't belong to the world. He doesn't even belong to himself. He is God's possession. Secondly, he's separate from evil. He hates sin. He is a holy man, meaning he's going to be against sin in all respects. Not some sin, not most sin, all sin. Wherever sin is in his life or anybody else, he's against it. He hates it. He wants it out. Could you say that Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 can apply to this as well? Presenting your body as a living sacrifice? To live our ways and life according to uh, yeah. God's glory. Sure, because he says holy and pleasing to God. So you're presenting yourself for holiness. Now definitely in Romans, there is a sense of progressive sanctification because we're not holy. All right, we got a lot of evil inside us. We, it cannot be said of us that we are light and in us there's no darkness at all. You guys have any sense of internal darkness? You know you do. There's a lot of internal darkness in us, but you'll have none in heaven. Zero. You'll be pure like God is pure. How beautiful will that be? But in the meantime, this, this is a man, this elder is a man who's committed to that. He's committed to as much as he possibly can being a pure man. Not a hypocrite, not putting on a show. He hates evil. He wants evil out of his life. He wants to be pure. He wants the people of God to be pure. He's a holy man. Any other thoughts on the word holy or holiness here? Well, he's working diligently toward that end. Right. He's being faithful to, to be self-controlled. 
to be upright, to be holy. Right, and that's what sanctification is. The Latin root, you know, uh, it means a progressive growth in holiness to make to make holy. That's what sanctify means. And so this is an individual who's committed to that. He's committed to being a holy man. And he knows the deficiencies of his heart, and, it, and they grieve him. You know, they grieve him. Paul was grieved. He said, what a wretched man I am. He knew that there was darkness inside him, and he hated it. He wanted it out. But at any rate, this is a man committed to that process. All right, so he's holy and then disciplined. What does that word mean to you? He's a disciplined man. What is discipline? Led by the scriptures. Okay. Led by the scriptures. Okay. He's not prone to stray. Uh, he stays in the word and guided by the word. Okay. He's a disciple of something. And in particular here, we see this. Word. Okay. A big part of holiness is discipline. It, it is managing the uh, the evil things that come our way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I tend to think in an athletic sense. You think about some of the great coaches, and the foundation to their coaching was discipline. You know, there was a sense that, you know, and you think especially about the training camps uh, for an NFL team in July. And August. I mean, what are they doing in July? Building their bodies back. They're getting in shape. I mean, what does that involve? Lots of <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you hear stories. I mean, I heard a story about Jerry Rice and also uh, Walter Payton. I think, especially at a hill, he used to run up like X number of times every day throughout the summer. I mean, what's he doing when he's running up that hill over and over and over and over? He's running up that hill. He's building endurance and muscle. Yeah, he's disciplining himself. He's getting used to pain. He's training his muscles. All right, is there anything like that in the Christian life, a discipline in the Christian life? Yes. Yeah, there's discipline. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. I actually beat my body and make it my slave, lest after preaching to others, I myself may be disqualified. What is he talking about there when he says, I beat my body and make it my slave? I think of Rocky, when he's lifting tires or he's pulling roof with rocks on it. He's training, that he's, he's training himself. He's, he's also correcting what he's learning, and it's also giving that, that instruction because of what he's doing. Each time in different movies, you see him doing different training, but he's also disciplined himself right. in that way. And I feel that, you know, that's, you know, being able to train yourself in the way of the Bible is very, very helpful. I see you getting to bed on time and waking up early and getting in the Word and getting, getting uh, right with it. Yeah, so there are habit patterns, all right? What you eat, when you sleep, what you do with your time, all right? Um, so a disciplined man follows rules. He just has certain rules. And if all things are equal in that day, he's going to follow that rule. If there's no good reason to not have his quiet time, he's going to have that quiet time. He's going to read the Bible. Yeah, go ahead. It's a consistent effort toward a goal. Yeah, and there's a lot of self-denial. You know, you deny yourself, take up your cross. I mean, Walter Payton didn't enjoy running up the hill, but he was doing it for a goal, you know, so that late in the season... He's still got that burst through the, through the line of scrimmage. He's still got energy 
late in the fourth quarter, that kind of thing. That's what he's trying to do. And there are uh, spiritual disciplines. You know, Paul says physical training is of some value, but godliness, train, he says, train yourself to be godly in 1 Timothy. Train yourself to be godly. So that has to do with putting, saying no to your lusts, has to do with your habit patterns. Um, you know, they're just spiritual disciplines. Probably for me, one of the most helpful disciplines has been memorizing scripture. I, I've given myself to this for years and years and years. And it's discipline. It's like it's, there's a certain pattern I follow to get through a book. That's what I did with Ezekiel. Uh, it's what I'm doing now with Romans. Again, I'm doing Romans for the second time in my life, and it came back. It was much better than Ezekiel. Ezekiel was brutal. Um, but Romans is much better. But there's just certain, a certain pattern I follow. And this discipline, there's certain patterns I follow with prayer. There's certain things that I do. And, and so this, this individual, this elder, has to be a disciplined man. What's the opposite? Somebody who's not disciplined. He's an undisciplined person. It means there's a looseness and a slovenliness to his approach. He's not careful with his life. Does that make sense? Um, he's, he's, a, he's not disciplined. He doesn't say no to himself. It means you're not receiving the instruction that is needed. Okay, so this individual is disciplined. All right, um, now let's get to verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. I'm sorry, Chris, read that again in your version. I like just like hearing different versions. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Okay, so almost identical. Hold firm to it, holding on to the, the message. So what do we mean by the trustworthy message as it has been taught? What is that even talking about? The trustworthy message. So the, the word of God, so this, whatever it is, I think that's true. Um, so he's holding fast, but I think primarily we would start with the gospel, right? The center of the Bible is the gospel. So the basic milk of the word, God, man, Christ, response, etc. the basic core doctrines, or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures. So that's the trustworthy message. And listen to how Paul introduced it. What I received, I passed on to you. You get that sense here in verse nine, that sense of having received something, he's now going to pass it on. Plus, he says to encourage others, in other words, to train others, mm -hmm. to bring them in line. Okay, so in verse 9 he says, he's got to hold firmly to what? The trustworthy message as it has been taught. In other words, as it was taught before you, before you came along, before you were even a disciple of Jesus Christ, before you were actually even born. Right? That's true of all of us here in the room. This thing's been going on a long time. It's like a relay race, and the baton has been ha handed to you now as an elder. These are elder candidates, right? This has been handed to you. Your job, take that baton and take it around the track and hand it off to the next runner. That's your job. So your job is to hold firmly to that doctrine as it has been taught. Don't be an innovator. Don't come up with some new thing. Take that doctrine as it has been taught and hold firmly to it. All right, you believe it's true, down to its depths. And your job is to, is to hold on to it and then encourage others, right? So foundational to a pastoral ministry is the ministry of the Word of God, all right? We take the Word of God 
It's entrusted to us, and we're faithful to it. Now, there's a lot involved in that, right? The Bible's complicated. You know, recently, as I was preaching on the abomination of desolation, a whole sermon on that, I began by talking about the marvel of the simplicity and complexity of the Bible. How would you say that the Bible is both simple and complex? The fundamentals are easily understood by someone at a young age or someone with a modest level of education, and yet there's no one that can fully grasp the intricacies that this Bible has put together over so many centuries. Yeah. It's, it's stunning. Um, you know, Alan, I appreciate that so much. The things you need to go to heaven, to have your sins forgiven, would you put that under the simplicity or the complexity side? Simplicity. Got to be simple. It's what the Bible calls milk, right? Like newborn babies crave the pure milk of the word, right? Something so simple a child could understand. God made everything. We do bad things. Jesus is the Son of God, died for us, rose again, that we might have forgiveness of sins. If you repent of your sins and believe in Him, you'll be forgiven. That's milk. Simple, right? But the Bible is deep. It's complex. So I'm going through Romans 9 on Wednesday night. We're right at election and reprobation. God has mercy on whom He wills to have mercy, and He hardens whom He wills to harden. All right, so someone there raised the question, what about the passage in Jeremiah, and I think it's even more clearly taught in Ezekiel, that says, if at any point an individual or a nation turns from its wickedness and does right, I will not hold against them all of the wickedness they've done. If on the other hand, at any point, an individual or a nation should turn away from all of the good things that they've done and start doing wickedly, I will judge them. I won't remember any of the good things that they've done in the past. It openly says that in Ezekiel a couple of times. And this individual at my Romans 9 Bible study wanted me to harmonize that teaching with the teaching of the absolute sovereignty of God over every individual human heart. How hard is that to do? Well, I'm telling you, it's very hard to do. How do I step up into the Ezekiel message and fully understand it? And try to know why the Holy Spirit inspired Ezekiel to write that and say it. And what effect it's supposed to have on me. While at the same time maintaining the absolute security of believers. Once saved, always saved. These kinds of things. How do I harmonize? It's not easy to do. I don't expect the Bible to be easy. I don't expect the abomination of desolation teaching to be easy. I expect, I hope, that the congregation will give me 40 minutes of tracking, mental tracking, to, to follow the argument so that they can understand it. If they'll give me that, we'll get somewhere. Does that make sense? So that there's this complexity. To, I don't expect everything in the Bible to be easy. But at any rate, verse 9, this individual, this elder candidate, has to hold firmly to the doctrine as it's been taught. Why? So that he can encourage, it says, others by sound doctrine. What does that word mean to you? Encourage others by sound doctrine. Lift them up. Witness. Okay. Witness. Okay. Signs of instruction. Okay. 
probably parakaleo. I didn't look in the Greek, I don't know, but it's a, it's a multifaceted word. <clears throat> I think it's basically giving a needy soul what it needs. It's a broad word, the paraclete, it relates to the counselor. So if you need advice, the word of God can give you advice. If you need, all right, uh, <laughs> all right, just in, in verse 9, what else might you do with sound doctrine other than encourage? Rebuke. Rebuke or refute. All right, so if an individual needs to be refuted, the word of God can do that, right? Or how about, um, uh, I don't know, verse 14. What does verse 14 say we should do? Verse 14. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths. Did I say 13? All right, sorry, 14, uh, 13. I don't have my reading glasses. I left them in my office. My testimony bad. is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. Okay, that's what I'm getting at. What does that mean to you, Jim? Rebuke them sharply. Paul went after these. All right, rebuke them sharply. What, is a re what does that mean, a rebuke? It's a strong word of criticism. I I've called it before a verbal spanking. All right, clear example of this is in Galatians 2, where Paul has to do that to Peter. Because Peter, under the influence of some men from James, had withdrawn from table fellowship with Gentile converts. So what does that mean, he withdrew from table fe fellowship with Gentile converts? We wouldn't eat with them. Wouldn't eat with them anymore. Snobbish. All right, so what does that do to church unity at that moment? That's, that's really, really bad. And that's Peter, the preacher of the Pentecost sermon. That's the, the apostle to the Jews. And he's officially withdrawing from eating with these people. So what did Paul do about that? Called him out. He called him out privately or publicly? publicly in front of everyone why did he do that and he I, you can tell from galatians 2 he thought absolutely had to be done his sin was public his role as apostle was public he was affecting other people so that even barnabas he said was led astray remember he's like you are drawing people away and so he got in his face and rebuked him and to his credit peter repented yeah, so sometimes it's going to take that. So going back to he can encourage others by sound doctrine, the word parakaleo, if that's what it is, I don't know that it is, but imagine it is, it means to give the needy soul whatever it needs. And the Word of God is equipped to do all of that. The Word of God can do anything that needy soul needs. If it needs just simple encouragement, like you think about the word, what does it mean to encourage somebody? It just simply, when you look at that word encourage, what does that mean to you? Mm -hmm. I mean, think about the word courage. I think simply it could be to give courage to that person. So they were depleted, they were depressed, they were discouraged, they were down, and then you come and you give them encouragement. They now have energy, they've got strength, they're ready to go. And the Word of God can do that. If you're a good counselor, you can give people courage, you can encourage them. So sometimes they just need to be instructed. Sometimes they just need information. There are things they didn't know. So the word of God is able to do that. The elder candidate, the elder individual must be able to do this. He must be skillful with the word of God. 
And so we can encourage others and then refute those who oppose it. So we'll talk about the negative word next time. So that's the idea of rebuking. We've already touched on it lightly. We've got this circumcision group. We've got all this. But in general, the need to fight for sound doctrine, to fight against false teaching. You have to do all that. Any final comments as we finish today? Simple and complicated. If you don't know the word, you can't encourage or refute. Yeah. You need, you need that foundation in order to speak to the truth of the gospel. Yeah. Encouraging or refuting. One thing I've learned from extended memorization of Scripture, memorizing every verse of a book and doing lots of books, is the Bible says more than you think it does. It just does. There's more details in there than you noticed. I mean, I've been over books, no joke, I've been over sections 40 days in a row, and then on the 41st saw something I'd never seen before in the Word. It'd been there all along. I just hadn't seen it. That's the amazing aspect of the Word of God. And I feel incredibly privileged that my work, my life work, is to do this, to do the Bible. I love that. appreciate that. Well, I praise God for it. It's, it's a great, great privilege. Jim, would you close in prayer, please, brother? Father God, open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Open the eyes of our heart that we may know you more, more fully, Lord, and we might uh, enjoy um, um, from the basic uh, beyond to the, the richness of your word and that we might be faithful and um, that which you've given us to do, Lord, that we might um, uh, hold that baton firmly. In many cases in our lives, Lord, we have that opportunity and to pass it on successfully. Father, only through your spirit can we do that. And we thank you, Lord, for this time that we can enrich our lives and, and give you praise for Jesus' glory. Amen. Amen.